Hey everybody, it's Justin from So See We All, just letting you know before we start the show that we are in the opening days of our Hot Story Summer Fund Drive. Raising $10,000 before August 1st to keep programs like this alive and healthy and bring our community even more shows, free education workshops, and publishing opportunities. We would be super duper grateful if you could make a one-time donation or even become a supporting member to help us reach our goal. Just go to sosayweallonline.com slash support now, and we will shower you with love, including thanking you by name on this very podcast. Thank you in advance for helping us keep the dream alive, and now, on to the show. The doors open. A hush falls upon the crowd. Stories will be saved from the grave. Summer is officially upon us. Here in San Diego, we still haven't had the kind of flattening heat waves or exploding forest fires that can wipe entire towns off the map like we have in previous summers. And considering all of the things going on in the country at the moment, it almost kind of feels like California understands we're working with a full plate at the moment, and she just doesn't want to add to that. For now, at least. But we've got a hell of a show that will hopefully help take your mind off all of that for at least the next hour or so on the theme of Whoa Mama. The show that originally debuted just a hot minute ago back in May of 2022. Mother's Day might have had something to do with our going with that theme at the time. We're going to hear from part one storytellers today, starting us off with Laura Preble. Take it away. Imagine, if you will, a spring day. And you are a high school junior in British literature class, and I am your teacher. I say to you, in Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, Hester Prynne is a woman who is punished publicly for being sexual. After a lusty affair with a local minister, Hester gives birth to Pearl. Physical proof of her sin makes her a target of her community, and her lack of shame really pisses off the Puritans. So they make her wear a scarlet A on all of her clothes, but she never names the father. So Sudden says, oh, that's not fair. So the guy got her pregnant and then gets away with no consequences? And I say, well, yeah. Everybody knows it's the woman's fault if she gets pregnant, right? (laughs) Students groan and roll their eyes at my sarcasm. I drive the point home. Why? Do we judge women so harshly for something like having sex with someone, but men who do the same thing are given a pass or even glorified? Then the bell rings, and the students, grateful not to discuss this awkward question with someone who looks like their mom, (laughs) pack up and (laughs) noisily shuffle out of the room. Now it's lunchtime, so... My stepson, 14-year-old Alex, pops into the room. Alex is the product of my husband's first marriage. (laughs) I met this kid when he was one and a half. And I immediately had loved this little person, but had been sensitive to the fact that Alex's mom didn't want him to have another primary maternal figure. Over time, though, it sorted itself out, and Alex called both of us mom. And and that point is actually very important to this story. So, Alex grinned in a suspiciously mischievous way. What's up, I asked. Oh, nothing, Alex answered, still grinning. I mean, 
I'm not supposed to say anything. I'm not supposed to say anything. Well, I knew that meant that there was a secret or a story that Alex wanted to share but had been told not to. This kid could not keep a secret. I figured it had to do with a surprise being planned for my birthday or maybe even some kind of an award at school, you know, something fun. So I pressed a little bit. Oh, come on. You know you want to tell me. Okay. Alex said as if I'd extracted some highly top secret information. My mom is modeling. She's flying to Florida tomorrow for training. Modeling. Alex's mom was a model. Now, she was a couple of years younger than me, so about 31 at that time, and she wasn't exactly bad looking. Her eyes bulged a little bit like a pressurized goldfish. <laughs> and her constantly bleached hair mostly frizzed into imitation straw. She was no J-Lo or ScarJo. Uh, okay, what kind of modeling is she doing, I asked, in Florida? <laughs> I see you thought the same, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not supposed to tell you, <laughs> Alex says, teasing. Sing song. Now this is when the little prickly, ill at ease feelings moms get started to nag a little bit behind my eyes. Like, nothing good happens in Florida. It's true. This little dance, you know, went on for most of lunch period with no answers. And when the bell rang, Alex just gave me a little wave and swiftly exited grinning like a lottery winner. Secret kept. So I had to just stew on that for the rest of the afternoon while I taught three more English classes about the Scarlet Letter. The most challenging thing was to convince them that Hester's stoic acceptance of the religious judgment was not numbness, but defiance. She would not accept the guilt they wanted her to feel. Much like Alex, Hester would not give up her secret. But finally, the day ended, and Alex bounced back in for the ride home. In the car, my gawky freshman fiddled with the door handle, picked at the upholstery, tapped on the window. Some piece of info was clearly trapped inside this tall body and wanted out. And it was my job to extract it. Okay. I know you want to tell me, I said. Alex stared out the window. Silence. Finally, it's really fine. It's something she's always wanted to do. I promise you won't freak out. When a teenager says that to you, it takes all of your personal control to not freak out. But I knew that I would never get the details if I did freak out. So I maintained my Hester Prynne-like calm. Okay, whatever it is, you can tell me. Alex leaned against the window. The bouncy, excited energy was gone, replaced by something else. Confusion? Fear? Shit. His mom had recently had a boob job that gave her double G breasts. 
that jutted out from her crop top like the white cliffs of Dover. <laughs> Maybe the upper deck restoration had something to do with all of this. Was she modeling goddess bras, back supports, flotation devices? Alex said, my mom is doing porn. I'm not supposed to tell you. So many feelings. Was this a joke? Maybe, maybe Alex got it wrong? Okay, I said, what does that mean? Seriously, you don't know what porn is? Well, of course I know what it is, but what do you mean when you say your mom is doing porn? Now Alex was clearly upset. I told her I didn't want to keep it a secret, but, but she sat Janet and me down and talked all about it to us, so it's perfectly fine. Janet was the stepsister Alex acquired when porn mom got married to Chuck, a used car salesman slash rodeo clown who sold her a mauve-colored Aspire. Then the purchase of the car had happened in the two weeks that my husband and I had gotten married and been on our honeymoon in Vancouver. Before we'd left, they'd never met. So, it was kind of an impulsive decision. For context, when Alex's mom had been married to my husband, she loved jazz, she had a diverse roster of friends, she was politically liberal. And after she met Chuck, she became this all-American, super conservative, country music-loving insurance agent. She sponsored t-ball teams. She placed ads on those paper placemats in homestyle restaurants. She sponsored all kinds of community events. When my son came out as gay in the eighth grade, Chuck had offered to buy him a prostitute. Because, you know, how could you know you're gay if you never had sex with a woman? My point is, I did not trust her judgment. <laughs> My job in that moment was to remain calm and to acquire information. Ah, okay, so, um, so what did she tell you? Well, it's perfectly safe because they're tested every week. It's something she's doing for herself. My inner bitch is having a field day. <laughs> safe? According to whom? The Ron Jeremy Safe Sex Handbook? The Perina Raw Dog Field Guide to STDs? And who does porn for themselves? Alex saw the confusion on my face and attempted to address it. Chuck is perfectly okay with it. I was somehow not at all surprised that Chuck was okay with it but who cares, this was about my kid. So I said, how are you feeling about it? Alex did not look really thrilled. Well, I guess it's okay if that's what she wants to do. I want her to be happy. At this point, I should mention that I feel like people should live their own lives and if someone wants to make porn movies, either for fun or profit, it's none of my business. I was no Puritan labeling sexually active women with scarlet A's on their chests, no matter how big their chest might be. <laughs> but, you know, this felt different. This felt like it could be putting my kid in danger. 
I did not trust his mom's judgment, and I trusted her husband even less. Was it a priority for them to keep Alex and Jana, two young teenagers, from getting involved in the world of adult entertainment? Would they be exposed to sexual behavior that would shape their ideas of what intimacy was? Or was I just clutching my pearls? I didn't know. I had to really think about what to do next. We didn't talk anymore about it that day, but I, I called one of my best friends and told her, and she flipped out. What are you gonna do? She yelled over the phone. I said, well, what can I do? I mean, it's not illegal, it's her business. But is she bringing it home? I mean, is she doing it from inside the house? <laughs> Shit, I hadn't even thought of that. I, I mean, I figured she's going to Florida, leaving all of that there. Maybe that wasn't true. I had extracted from Alex the pseudonym his mom performed under, Mishka36G. I told my friend, who's a first-class internet snoop, and she vowed to do some deep diving to find out how far down this rabbit hole the Mishka thing went. Well, later that night, I got a call from my friend. Jesus H. Christ, she said. <laughs> you gotta look at this stuff. Well, I'm thinking there will be no amount of bleach that will cleanse my eyes if I go looking into the deep, dark porn web for the PTA mom who did Pensacola. I mean, you know, it's different if somebody you know, right? Someone who's co-parenting your kid? Was I just being old-fashioned and Midwestern? But of course, you know, I had to look. My friend had found her working website, tastefully festooned with staged photos of her with her husband, Chuck, in all his assless chap glory. And I also saw why she chose the name she did. Mishka 36G was definitely 36G. With my friend still on the other line, I poked around the website. She had starring fit roles in such films as Squirting Grannies 2. Granny? Like, I was only like three years older than her. Oh. Then my friend told me to check out the menu, yeah, which detailed all the sex things she'd do and how much they cost. Now, I consider myself a fairly well-rounded woman, but there was stuff on that list I did not know what it was. I tried to quell the panic in my gut. Maybe I was overreacting and being a prude, so what if she wanted to have sex with people she didn't know for money? Was that a crime? Well, yeah, kinda. Um. But, you know, criminalizing sexual activity was puritanical and backwards. Accepting that my son's other mother did porn was modeling sexual freedom for the kids, right? Was showing them that it's okay for a woman to be a sexual being in her own right, unfettered by society. And still, it bothered me. A week later, Alex seemed upset. At break, I sat down with him and I asked why. And he said, well, mom is bringing people to the house, making movies and stuff. You, you mean, people are coming to your house and, and making movies in your house? Alex nodded. And inside, my stomach was churning. Alex said, we have to stay in our rooms or they do it when I'm at your house, but it's just creepy. <laughs> oh, 
my philosophy of empowering female sexuality had collided head on with my maternal instincts. What was the right thing? Let Alex vent about it and leave it alone? Or as a responsible parent, did I need to do something to protect my kids? Nobody covered this in the mommy and me class. <laughs> I dithered over this for a week or so and one day the issue was decided for me. Random students from other classes started to approach me and say, hey, I heard this weird rumor about you. <laughs> and I realized that Alex had been telling all the other students about his mom, the one in the porn movies, except at school, everybody knew me as his mom. Now, this made the situation a little bit more urgent. I immediately went to my principal and I explained that, hey, if you heard this rumor, you could rest assured I was not the porn mom. And after spilling my guts to him, he also notified our on-site sheriff because apparently listing sexual things that you will do for money is considered not so legal. So, Mishka and Chuck got a visit from the local authorities telling them to take the menu off the website. And Alex didn't talk to me for a couple of weeks after that, figuring that I was the whistleblower. We, you know, just didn't talk about it after that. Alex pretended it wasn't happening, and we pretended it wasn't happening. Alex's mom even made it into the boobapedia. Yes, that's a thing. And she had some fans. But her adult movie star phase passed quickly enough due to some less than stellar reviews. So she retired from her celluloid dream job. She divorced Chuck and his rodeo clown ass chaps. And she started a feral cat rescue called Pussy Galore. The reviews for that are great. That was Laura Preble, everybody. And next up, Deborah Bass with a beautiful story about mothers and daughters that only she could tell. When my mom died, I was 29. She had just turned 50. It was earth shattering, but not for predictable reasons. At the time, we lived more than 2,000 miles apart and only had a few strained, obligatory conversations each month. Still, I sobbed uncontrollably. It wasn't just the immediate shock of loss and unspoken goodbyes. I missed what would have been. I thought one day, me and my mom would become friends. I looked forward to showing her that I was capable, successful, and well-adjusted. I wanted to make her proud, and I probably wanted to rub her nose in it a little bit. I thought age was the key to unlocking our pent-up, unconditional love for each other that was living behind a wall of passive aggression. I cried because I'd never get to tell her that she was kind of a jerk when I was a kid and laugh with her about it. My mom had a great sense of humor, but we rarely shared laughs together. At family gatherings, she was a boisterous comedian, commanding attention at high volume, I'd see a side of her that I never knew at home. She was gregarious, her voice would go up an octave, and she'd talk with her hands. 
There was a big smile as she spoke. It was like a magic trick, this transformation. She could be the life of the party, but if you ask me to describe our ha- childhood home, the most striking characteristic was the silence. I wonder if it was a reaction to the chaotic home my mom must have grown up in. She had five siblings. Their mother, my grandmother, Aggie, died when my mom was 13. My mom wasn't the oldest, but she was the most responsible, so she assumed an adult role at an early age, as was the custom in rural Louisiana. They lived with my great-grandparents in St. Joe, the state's smallest and poorest township. I imagine that when she moved to Las Vegas after finishing high school, that she felt free for the first time. Las Vegas was home to many black families from the South because of the abundance of service industry jobs. Her older brother, my Uncle Willie, and his wife had moved there a few years earlier when he finished military service. All of the siblings followed. Moving to the big city with her own apartment, making her own money, and deciding her own life must have been a dream come true for my mom. She was working at a casino, doing housekeeping, and sometimes serving cocktails. She was taking a clerical course. She had a boyfriend, and then she had me. I don't know my biological father. My mother never even told me his name, and something in me knew never to ask. When I was four, my mom sent me to live with my great-grandparents in Louisiana, the same ones who raised her. She needed help, and that was a time when childcare wasn't readily available for single working women. I lived with my great-grandparents for one fabulous year in which I knew what it was like to be a rock star. My grandpa took me with him everywhere, and all the adults laughed and joked about how sedity I sounded and acted. Sididi being a rural rebuke of city life and mannerisms. After a year, I returned home to Las Vegas and met my mom's new friend. He was a giant at six foot six inches. He had a huge smile and kind eyes, and I liked him right away. They explained that he was something called a husband, and he would be living with us. (laughs) My mom had a new last name, and so did I. We soon moved into a modest three-bedroom house, and I embarked on the life of a pretty regular 70s West Coast latchkey kid. It wasn't until much later that I realized how foreign and highly irregular my life was compared to my mom's upbringing in the segregated South. The school I walked to for the first six years of elementary was four city blocks from my house, not miles away through southern unplaved roads. I never wore hand-me-downs. I never killed a chicken or cleaned chitlins for dinner. I never prepared a full meal for a family of eight or even our family of three. I had my own room painted inspirational yellow, my own double bed, and my own floral sheets and bedspread. I had my own bathroom, and I had never used an outhouse. There was a TV in my room and a phone. There was a modest front and backyard that did not reek of livestock. When I whined about filling the dishwasher after not contributing any labor to actually making the meal, or moaned about eating okra, yuck, or having pork chops again, boring, 
or dusting the glass shelves in the living room. Isn't this futile? We live in a desert. <laughs> it's a wonder she didn't just lock me out of the house and return to the couch as I whimpered in the yard. I don't know that my mom and I would have been the best of friends, but I did look forward to showing her that I was worth the sacrifices she made to raise me. We were dispassionately, contentedly mother and daughter most of my life, bound together by fate, but as familiar as strangers on a reality television program in which the contestants are not allowed to leave the house. I was a kid, so I didn't know about ulterior motives or psychological withholding, but I knew I was supposed to love my mom with all my heart, no matter what, and I did. I think she signed the same agreement for her part, but she knew there was a love loophole. That meant she didn't have to like me. She knew that meeting the needs of your small human could be a proxy for love. I mean, what is love anyway? I was surely as curious a being to her as an alien, and based on her upbringing in Louisiana, in a town in which every black family received their last names from wealthy white families who held hostage and abused their ancestors, I was an alien. At the age of eight, I asked her to buy me a notebook so that I could write poetry thoughts when they came to me. She probably rolled her eyes but she got me a small notebook to carry around. One night I was dreamier than usual, staring transfixed out the back window of the car as we drove home. My mom pretended not to notice. She could be really stoic, and she was so unenamored by my kookier artistic behavior that she actively refused to comment on it. She got out of the passenger side and left the door open, but I stayed in the back seat scribbling and erasing. When I finally walked into the kitchen, curiosity got the best of her. What was that about? I was writing a poem, I said en route to grab a snack. What did you write? I imagined my eight-year-old self pausing with a cookie near my open mouth, wrinkling my face in confusion. My mom didn't ask me about what I wrote. She didn't ask me how school was or what I learned today. She didn't want to know about what I was drawing or building. She didn't take an interest in kid stuff. She wasn't good at faking it. So when she asked about my poem, I hesitated, but decided, okay, I'll play along. This is the only poem I remember from that period in my life, and I'm sure it's because of this moment. <clears throat> Though the moon is high, and I am low, it seems to follow wherever I go. As I finished, there was the faintest reaction, a flicker of emotions so quick I couldn't decipher them. Then she covered all traces with her practiced, disinterested mom mask. That it, she asked. Um, I don't know yet. It was another question I was unprepared for. Then she just walked away. That was mom. Never mommy or mama, mom. My earliest memories are of her talking to me as simply and matter-of-factly as I'm talking to you right now. 
My mom didn't believe in baby talk. There was no babas or binkies, no going wee-wee or sleepy time. As a result, I grew up speaking in complete sentences and my phone voice, phone voice, phone, phone voice <laughs> was always confused for hers, even by my aunts and uncles. Yes, I talked exactly like this as a 10-year-old. When unfamiliar adults would lean down to converse with me, mimicking childlike voices, it always creeped me out. <laughs> what do you want to be when you grow up and become a big girl? Um, I plan to become a psychiatrist and help people. <laughs> I meant it. I came to that career decision when I was five years old, and I didn't change my mind until college. I think I wanted to know what made people think people tick. People like my mom. I never saw my mom cry, and I can count the number of times that she said she loved me out loud on one hand. I remember them because they were so jarring. Like when a random stranger who looks like they might punch you walks up and says, your brown eyes are pretty, or you look like a movie star. My mom did her motherly duty, but she didn't really seem to enjoy it most of the times. She wasn't overly strict or overly stern or overly anything. She was indifferent, mostly. I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner, usually home-cooked and delicious, but often spent evenings in separate rooms watching different televisions. She was smart and beautiful and had big dreams, I think. She never told me about them, but I saw the longing for them in her eyes, and I imagine that was the reason. I was a pretty quiet kid who was perfectly happy dreaming up stories and talking quietly to imaginary friends. I've always been happier with pen and paper than with company. Our quiet house was a haven to me. She must have wondered intensely about what in the world was going on in that brain of mine. Honestly, I didn't think she cared until the day she read my journals. I knew because she decided to ask me about a few passages she disliked. I never suspected that was something another person would do, trespass on your private thoughts. I didn't know shame and fury until that moment. She broke my heart, but I didn't scream and yell about it. That was not our way of communicating. The next day while she was at work, I quietly burned every journal and everything I had ever written in the fireplace. Never been able to pick up the habit of writing in a journal again. Years later, when I was in high school, my mom asked if I would call us friends. She wanted to know if I'd feel comfortable confiding in her if I had a problem. I'm sure she did not remember the journal incident. The question was out of the blue, but it must have been on her mind for a while. I took too long to answer. Uh, sure. <sighs> Yeah, of course. <laughs> but we both knew that meant no. Neither of us knew how to fix it, and I assumed that time was the answer. Fate, however, did not communicate. I turned 50 last year, the same age my mom will forever be. It felt eerie and sad and heavy with expectation. Even though our lives were so divergent, outliving my mother holds an odd significance significance I haven't yet reconciled. 
When she died, I helped my dad go through her belongings. We found a time capsule of items I didn't anticipate. She never praised me on my grades or test scores. She often said I was book smart, but common sense dumb. So I hadn't expected the folder holding every report card and teacher's note I'd ever had from school, including my Bachelor of Rhymes kindergarten <laughs> diploma. from my year in Louisiana. I found crayon assignments, my infant footprints, handmade cards, postcards I'd sent from Hungary, Spain, and dozens of little treasures I would not have thought her sentimental enough to keep. The most surprising thing I found, though, was her poetry. I never knew she wrote. There weren't many, just a handful written on wide-ruled, loose-leaf paper in her practiced penmanship. All the pieces were neatly filed in an unlabeled manila folder. Who knows how long they resided there. The ending of a poem titled Achieve caught my attention. My body you may capture, no matter what it takes, my thoughts escape. My mom had been sick for a while, and I wonder if that meant she'd been coping by creating stories, something I would have done. Another piece entitled Victory was about overcoming past mistakes. It was vague, but in it, she seemed to be giving herself a pep talk, telling herself that it was not too late to accomplish some goal. But the poem that caused my hands to shake as I read it was titled Motherless Child. Lonely and confused I wander. What will become of me? In it, she asked a series of sincere and pained questions without answers. The collection of items gave me an odd validation and comfort. My mother loved me as best as she could. She was human and flawed and yet created a life of relative ease for me that was foreign for her. That is no small feat and I don't begrudge her any mistakes. I can't imagine the plight of a motherless child raising a child who is an alien. <laughs> I wish I could tell her I appreciate her for doing her best. And I wish I could say, yes, mom, I would call us friends. The indelible Deborah Bass, everyone. Next up, TJ Talley with a story about race, family, and a revolution that maybe came a little too prematurely. Here's TJ. When I was 23, my mother told me, I was terrified about becoming a mother. I've never particularly liked children. I still don't, honestly. When she saw my face, she added, well, you were different. I mean, you were mine, and we did all of it together. Thanks, Mom. But this is the kind of honesty that comes with being the child of Diana Talley, who never made me feel unwanted, and instead she showed me what it was to be loved fiercely, even if I had the temerity to be a child. <laughs> now, it wasn't easy for a single white mother to raise a mixed-race black kid in the 80s and 90s, 
and to love that son dearly and also be afraid that you're messing it up every day. So here are some times out of the many that Diana Talley got it right. Number one, just do the thing. So in June of 2009, one year into my PhD program, I was due to leave for South Africa and I was scared shitless. I was gonna spend the summer in a rural village as a full immersion experience for Zulu language students. Four days before my flight, I rushed into the hallway where Diana Talley was calmly folding a pile of laundry. I can't, I can't, I can't do it, mom. I can't fucking do it. I said, hearing my voice crack with the rising panic that I was feeling. Do what, my mother answered with practiced boredom. Her brows wrinkled as she focused on a particularly stubborn shirt, probably mine. Now, Diana Talley has taken care to fold shirts because, as we've both admitted for years, we are not an ironing family. <laughs> what the fuck am I thinking, Mom? I can't go learn Zulu. I've taken it for barely a year and I don't know fucking anything. I suck at this. I'm gonna make a complete fool of myself and I'm gonna fail miserably. Diana Talley put the shirt down for a second, still paying more attention to the sleeve that stubbornly refused to fold. Oh, I'm sorry, she said. I thought this was a program for people who didn't know Zulu and wanted to learn it. I had no idea this was a program for people who are already Zulu experts. Go to Africa, go learn Zulu, sing the Lion King song. That's the whole point. Now I started to say something else, but I noticed she was back at work on that damn shirt. Fold, motherfucker, she said under her breath. Number two. Malcolm, my mother, and me. So in the spring of 1999, I was a 15-year-old high school sophomore. Now, I didn't grow up feeling extraordinarily close to my blackness or really understand how I felt about being a person of color. My family did not opt for a colorblind parenting approach, recognizing that I wasn't ever gonna pass as a Chad or a Logan. <laughs> but that still left me with a lot to figure out on my own. So I was unprepared for my school-assigned reading of the autobiography of Malcolm X. Now, I read with horror about how Malcolm's family had encountered murderous white supremacy. I was moved by the formation of his racial consciousness and his sense of justice and desire to combat racism and to make things better. And I couldn't put the book down. I started it on the long bus ride home from school and I kept reading it all afternoon while I waited for my mom to get home from work. Now, about halfway through, I decided to dig out an old fez I'd found for sale at a thrift store, as you do, <laughs> wrap myself in some scarves, and light a series of candles around me as the afternoon sun began to fade. So this was the scene that awaited my mom, <laughs> then a 44-year-old single mother who had just finished working a long and particularly grueling day. So she was tired as usual. She'd walked into a living room shrouded in semi-darkness, illuminated only by a few decorative Bath and Body Works candles. <laughs> the room was ominous, yet smelled like cucumber melon? <laughs> and maybe country apple? Why was it so dark and why was it scented like a gay farmer's market? 
As her eyes adjusted in the dim light, she could see me wearing that beat up fez and holding Malcolm X's autobiography. My eyes reflecting the candlelight narrowed at her. Uh, hi? Ready for dinner? She offered, utterly confused. I am not pleased with you, white woman, I replied. Nor the imperialist crimes of your race. My mom's shoulders sagged. Now, looking back, I can see her thinking about all of the microaggressions that come with raising a mixed black kid in California and all of the derision she'd experienced from a variety of people as a white woman with a brown child. She heaved her purse on the kitchen counter as if it carried the totality of her rage and her exhaustion. And then she turned to face me. Oh, okay. Is that so? Well, I guess somebody's gonna make his own fucking dinner. White ladies on strike. And she quickly strode from the room and shut the door to her own bedroom. So I knocked on the door and I remember saying, mom, can we have racial reconciliation? I'm too hungry for revolution today. Number three, letting go. So in September of 2001, I moved into my freshman dorm at UCSD with the assistance of both of my parents. So my parents' marriage had slowly crumbled like a rotting tooth in its socket before being yanked out in 1990. But Diana and Tyrone Talley were forever linked by the fact that they had a child between them. And I secretly appreciated that my parents both appeared for graduations and official events. And as a kid, it made me feel like I made sense to outside observers. My mom saw this growing up and committed to this family unit performance at every event to make me feel like I fit in somehow. My dad, who was generally not a part of my life by his own decision, relished these performances. Now, without any effort of his own, he had an instant family to parade, just add water. While my dad bragged and grandstanded to strangers all over campus, my mom and I moved trance-like, almost as if we were working underwater. For 17 years, we'd been a team. We'd experienced the millions of quotidian struggles between a single mother and her growing son. And so much of the two of us were bound up in each other. We were like two trees that had grown entangled, the combined architecture of our branches lending support and structure. And now one of those trees was pulling up roots and moving away. I dropped and I shattered a coffee mug. My mom accidentally ripped a big gash in a poster. And my dad laughed really loudly, demonstrating his paternal mastery of precisely nothing. While we looked at each other and we tried not to cry. This was growing up, right? This, this was the next step. Finally, we were done. So my dad had charmed plenty of other people's parents, and I saw him get the phone number of a woman moving her daughter into the dorm next door. And he winked at me as he slid the card into the pocket. My mom and I hugged, desperate to hold on to the other without drowning in the rising tide of our feelings. Hey, call, call me when you get home, I said, with a smile that didn't reach my eyes. Two hours later, I was sitting on my bed, exchanging that awkward small talk with your roommate. 
when my blue Nokia cell phone rang. Right on time. Hey, Mom! You okay? Hey. 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 I love you. Um, I love you too? Your dad. Your dad. He saw I was a mess, and he took me out for drinks when we got back home. He is an asshole, but he does know that I love white Zinfandel. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for all of this, Mom. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. It's gonna be so good. You are so good. Don't, 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 don't be sad, okay? You're gonna be amazing, I love you. Number four, I didn't do it for him. So in 2011, my father's father died. Gentry Howard Talley was born in Texas at the height of Jim Crow segregation. He'd moved to California in 1954, fleeing a state that locked him into a second class status and making a hopeful go of it someplace else. He was the loudest, most aggressively cheerful person I had ever met. I called my mom immediately when I found out. And something in her voice shifted over the phone, this like note of resignation and sadness. I'll be at the funeral, she said. So Gentry had taken a shine to my mom when my parents started dating. She was always D to him. And he led the way in insisting that she was the newest member of the family. And for her part, my mom immediately, as a white lady, worked to learn all of my black Texan family's favorite recipes. That Gentry Tally specifically asked for her peach cobbler every Thanksgiving for the next 20 years after my parents' divorce is real proof that she made it. <laughs> yeah. I saw my father for the first time in three years at the funeral. He'd shrunken from this sort of bluff, muscular man that I remembered. And instead, a gaunt man stood before me in a too large suit, jaundiced eyes uncertain behind a plastered on smile. Long time no see, son. Yeah, your mom's here too. She said he was still family to her. He winced at the implication and then said, yeah, that was always good of her. As they lowered my grandfather into the earth, I turned and looked at my mom with tears in her eyes, smiling softly at some memory I couldn't know. And then to my horror, I watched my father stride up to my mom, weeping, and throw his arms around her, sobbing. And my mom froze. Her arms stood out rigidly, and all I could hear was my dad's loud sobs. And then she held him like you would a sobbing infant. Shh, Tyrone, shh. And he eventually composed himself and wandered away. And I immediately hurried over. It was the right thing to do, she said, looking straight ahead. I didn't do it for him. I did it for Gentry. I will never forget that hug and that offering of love to someone who so little deserved it and yet so desperately needed it. Number five, fuckery. <laughs> On a chilly spring day in 2016, Diana Talley and I walked past row after row of Confederate monuments in Richmond, Virginia's Hollywood Cemetery. 
Ooh, there's another one. She pointed to a massive monument commemorating Jefferson Davis, the former president of the Confederacy. Go do that one. So I handed her my phone, and she quickly shot a snap of me staring steely-eyed at the camera, both middle fingers in the air. Nice. I laughed as I rushed over to look, and we kept walking step in step. I thought of how this moment combines so many things I love about my mom. Absurd, whimsical, compassionate, angry, serious, and very flippant. <laughs> Diana Talley has taught me how to combine my love of justice and truth with good cheer and the occasional ability to laugh at myself. I'm not always good at it. <laughs> I'm in process. A prime example, celebrating my 32nd birthday by traipsing through a Confederate shrine and flipping off figures of white supremacy and black enslavement. As I posed for the next photo, I watched my mom shake her head silently as she looked over the rows of the Confederate cemetery. It's just so much violence, so much fuckery, I offered, finishing her sentence. Yeah, fuckery, that's it. How are you gonna pose next, she asked, standing in front of yet another terrible Confederate. I honestly have no idea, I said, suddenly tongue-tied. Well, she offered, try something new. Sometimes, TJ, you just have to do things, even if it seems like it's too big of a job. That was the doctor, TJ Talley, everybody. TJ Talley. I know this is an audio medium being a podcast, but if you're a Jeopardy fan, you'd probably recognize his face if you saw it. So do Google him. And our final story today, Milo Shapiro with a story about first dates and dodged bullets. Here's Milo. When you walk into the Playhouse bar, you immediately turn left or right. To the left, the piano bar. To the right, the dance bar. At 18 years old, I am terrified to be alone in gay bars, dance bars especially, so I tend to hang by the piano bar where it might be easier for someone to talk to me. A few do, but most of the piano guys are like three times my age. Don't get me wrong, I'm into older guys, but that means like, 28. These guys are wearing shirts older than me. Hey, you gonna, you gonna hold that glass of ice all night or can I buy you a drink? I turn to see which one of the old timers is offering me a refreshment and I see him. Definitely Italian, well built, about 28 and handsome, like way out of my league, kind of handsome. But he's clearly talking to this kid who is staring at him, speechless. A drink, he repeats. What was in your glass? Oh, uh, a, a screwdriver. John Abellino flashes the kind of perfect smile that unfairly men that good looking are usually also blessed with. Because life just isn't fair. If it was, he should have a four-inch dick to offset those looks, but you know he's gonna be packing nine. In my league or not, I am instantly hooked. Beyond gazing into those deep green eyes, I find that I like his easy manner right away. He's friendly, funny, 
bright. We laugh a bunch and time flies by too fast. You bored? He's caught me looking at my watch. I, I explained that the last bus back to the dorms is at 2 a.m. and it's past 1.30. Oh, well, I'll give you a lift back to the dorms after breakfast tomorrow. I, I've only ever once gone home with someone I just met, but isn't that the whole point of being in a gay bar in 1983? <laughs> I find myself nodding yes before finding any words. I, I can't believe I'm going to get to see him with his shirt off, let alone have sex with him. Minutes later, we are cruising down Lark Street, Albany's tiny little version of Hillcrest. I lean over to inhale him, a blend of natural scent and English leather aftershave. <laughs> we walk down the brownstone stairs to his cute little basement apartment and then into his bedroom. I find it a little odd that one has to go through the bedroom we're in to get to the rest of the apartment, but then he kisses me and any thoughts of architectural design go right out of my mind. <laughs> We roll about on the bed, kissing as he pulls off of my clothes with an eagerness I had not expected. In moments, I am wearing nothing but my Twistaflex wristband and my college ring. I put them on the nightstand, partly to keep lube off them and partly to, f and partly to feel completely naked as I leap onto my luscious playmate. Nudely empowered to strip him of the last barrier of, to me, the briefs that he is barely inside of, and for the record, closer to seven, but really thick. From, from there, more kissing, nipple play, mutual sucking, stroking, grinding, the gay basics. Then, in a move that my first boyfriend always liked, I reach under his balls and between his legs and my middle finger finds his butthole for about half a second. He leaps off the bed like my finger had been a blowtorch. What the fuck? What the fucking fuck, man? What is it with you fucking gays that you're all about assholes all of the time? God fucking damn it! I'm stunned. I've, I've only been with a couple of guys, but so far, that move has had 100% positive reviews. But, but this beautiful, buck-naked man clearly does not like being touched there. I'm confused and embarrassed, trying to apologize as his anti-butt tirade continues while he's tearing furiously through his dresser, looking for whatever one suddenly seeks in response to having their anus unwantedly touched. <laughs> he finds it and splays it out on the bed between us. It's an issue of Hustler magazine. Hustler, the absolute antithesis of hot gay male sex. He starts thumbing through it intensely, caressing the pages as if they were the women themselves. He starts ranting about how hot they are, asking me which ones I find hot. I gesture at a brunette on one of the pages. She's pretty. I'm, 
I'm technically still calling myself bisexual at this point, so it's, it's not a stretch to see that she's attractive. I make an effort to join him in his desperate plunge for lust for the female body, which, which probably would have been easier for me if this actual smoking hot, naked, well-hung man weren't four inches away from me. Something about the magazine and the sight of the naked women and my showing interest in them too begins to settle him. He relaxes. His hand finds my shoulder, my back, my ass, but just the cheek. <laughs> we start to kiss again. And in my confused, naive attraction for this guy, I somehow think things are okay again. He goes down on me, but frequently glancing at the magazine. Eventually, he gets me off and then gets himself off, looking back and forth between me and a blonde in stilettos. The magazine gets put away. We go under the covers. I cuddle into his band roll scented armpit. And, and we fall into a peaceful sleep together, as if this wasn't the most fucked up thing ever. Somewhere around 4 a.m., I'm awakened by an argument about 10 feet away in the living room. I place John's voice in the commotion. It's muffly, but I can tell that the other guy is really upset that I'm in the bed. Then, in the pitch blackness, that other man comes through the bedroom I'm in, delays there momentarily, and then goes out that second door down the hallway where he slams what I presume is the door to another bedroom. John comes back in and apologizes. Oh, was that your boyfriend? No, no, my roommate, Louis, but he gets jealous. Sorry, just, just go back to sleep. So, so I do. Hours later, I awaken, and thank goodness, Louis is gone. John offers to take me out for that breakfast, and I accept. As John showers, I dress in last night's clothes, which reek of bar smoke. Once dressed, I turn to the nightstand and see my ring. Just my ring. No watch. And for the ring to have been there, the watch would have had to have been lifted straight up. I look on the floor around the bed, no watch. John comes out, and he searches too, but no sign of it. I, I, I can't believe this, he says, but... I get that the only answer is that Lewis took it. I'll search through his stuff later, and I'll call you if I can find it. I, I'm so sorry about this. During an awkward breakfast and lift back to the dorms, I'm thinking about my dad. How am I going to explain to my dad that his watch is gone? The one he bought on his honeymoon? The one he made a big deal of letting me wear as he sent me off to college? I explained this to John. I, I totally understand. Here's my number. We'll find it, I'm sure. Over the next week, I hear nothing from John. I call like five times a day, and it just rings without an answer. I finally decide I'm going to take the bus down there. I walk the five blocks from the bus stop to his apartment door, and I ring the bell. No answer. I stare at the doorknob, and I try it. It turns. I push, the door opens, I yell, hello, <laughs> no reply. 
And with the great wisdom of an 18-year-old, I enter the apartment and close the door behind me. I pass. Because it's complicated. I pass. I'm not looking. I pass through the living room, enter John's bedroom, and go down that hall. Lewis's door is slightly open, and I slip inside. It's mostly empty. In fact, the whole apartment seems emptier than I remember it, like they're moving out. But I look down, and there's a yellow backpack leaning against Lewis's closet. He stole my dad's watch. I get to look in his backpack. In, in his room, in the apartment I just broke into. <laughs> Books, Marlboros, Jujubes, but no watch. I look up at the closet and think, oh, what the hell? I slide the closet door open and there's nothing in there but a jean jacket. I reach into the jean pocket, jacket pocket, and hear the front door slam. There's only one place I can go. I take a breath and step into the closet and slide the door shut behind me from the inside. There's basically no light. I can hear myself sweating. My heart is beating so loudly that I'm afraid it'll give me away. But over that pounding, I do hear someone moving around. Minutes pass as I fear that whoever it is will come in and suddenly want that jacket. If it's Lewis, he wouldn't recognize me, but if it's John, even if somehow I get past him, fuck, he knows my name, my phone number, and which dorm I'm in. I'm just gonna have to use the element of surprise. <laughs> An insane sweep through the whole apartment with my head down. Whoever it is will be so stunned that I can get to the front door and keep running if it's unlocked. I really, really hate this plan. But I've just committed breaking and entering so good plans are a luxury. Then I hear an odd squeak and another sound, running water. Whoever it is turned on the shower, give him a minute. One, two, three, this is not happening. 20, 21, 22, I really don't want to get arrested. 34, 35, 36, I never even got detention in high school. 46, 47, 48, I cannot believe I am literally back in the closet. <laughs> 58, 59, 60. I gingerly slide the door open just a little and then dash down the hall as fast as I can, finding no one, praise God, in the living room as I throw open the mercifully unlocked front door, leap up the basement steps, and run all the way up Lark Street, never looking back. I received no calls from John that week. So a week later, I returned to their place. No answer to the bell. The door is locked this time. A man comes down from the upstairs brownstone. You looking for the guys who lived in there? 
Oh, yes, uh, one of them is a friend of mine. He informs me that there had been about eight guys living in there in shifts. They never paid him again after the deposit, and it took months to evict the whole lot of them. Suddenly I got that John was as likely the thief as Lewis, and I catch the irony of the name Hustler. <laughs> a month later, I'm out at the Playhouse bar, and I see John. It's a weird moment when you run into the semi-homeless stud who sucked your dick, stole your watch, and then treated you to pancakes. <laughs> I asked him about the watch because how could I not? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I looked through his stuff and I didn't find it. Sorry about that. Another awkward pause, and then he went off to the dance side. About eight months later, I shared the tale with a couple at the piano. Oh, <laughs> we know who you mean, the, the hottie with the Italian horn necklace. We don't see many of, like him on the piano side. <laughs> you know you got off lucky, right? Lucky? He stole my watch. How did I get off lucky? Honey, he's in jail now for attempted manslaughter. Oh. What? Yep, John, or whatever he called himself to you that night, he hooked up with some guy, robbed him, and locked the poor fella in the trunk of his own car. No water and the heat at that time. It was days before someone finally heard him. That flipped a switch in me. It made me realize that I had no idea who anyone in a bar was or what their motivation could be. Yeah. <laughs> In, in, in my case, since I was a poor college student with nothing more than a pretty watch, the straightish thug let me off cheaply, though I realize now it could have been brutal when things got too gay for what he was willing to do for cash. I made a rule that night that I kept for many years. I decided I would never sleep with any guy I met on the day I met him. If he didn't like me enough to call or to take my call to see him again, then maybe it was better that I didn't get laid that night. Now, compared to most 18-year-olds going to bars in New York, then that made me practically a nun. <laughs> but it was 1983, and since safe sex wasn't really a thing in Albany until around mid-85, that choice might have saved my life. To this day, I'm not always the most trusting person, and John probably lurks in the back of my subconscious, chanting the mantra, people aren't always all what they seem, because some really aren't. As for John himself, if he's alive, and he really might be, he'd only be about 66 now, I hope he is out there somewhere living safely and comfortably in an orange jumpsuit, <laughs> fooling no one, and protecting his precious asshole. Milo Shapiro, everybody! What'd you think of the first half? Pretty amazing, right? That is the first half of Woe Mama, performed by Laura Preble, Deborah Bass, TJ Talley, and Milo Shapiro. 
Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts if you haven't already, and do consider leaving us a rating and review. It helps for reasons that only the algorithm understands, and while we can never know the mysteries of its inner workings, we submit ourselves to its will. If you want to learn more about So Say We All, including our live shows, the fine reading our small press publishes, and our other podcasts, pop over to our website, sosayweallonline.com. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall. Leslie Ferguson was our volunteer producer for the live show. Joe Hudick is our production manager. Jennifer Corley is our program director. And Brent Hanavy is our social media manager who helps get the words out. All the original music you heard was provided by the inspired Kurt Conan of AMFM Music, except for this ending song you're hearing right now, graciously contributed by 1032. Support is made possible by the California Arts Council, the San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture, the Conrad Prebis Foundation, and the supporting members of So Say We All. We would love to have you as one of those members. Just go to sosayweallonline.com slash support or find us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash sosayweallonline. We would deeply appreciate the love. See you back shortly for Whoa Mama Part 2. Do be well, don't be a stranger, and keep listening. <laughs>